0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Douglas Ptolemy's first book, Bringing Nature Home, awakened thousands of readers to an urgent situation. Wildlife populations are in decline because the native plants they depend on are fast disappearing. His solution plant more natives. In his new book, Ptolemy takes the next step and outlines his vision for a grassroots approach to conservation. Nature's Best Hope shows how homeowners everywhere can turn their yards into conservation corridors that provide wildlife habitats. Ptolemy says that because this approach relies on the initiatives of private individuals, it's immune from the whims of government policy. Even more important, it's practical, effective, and easy. Douglas Tallamy is a professor in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware. Uh, His books also include The Living Landscape, co-authored with Rick Dark. Before we jump into this conversation, uh, Utah Public Radio and Bridgeland Audubon Society are excited to launch the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark ARC Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens, and this art contest celebrates the beauty of this interdependence and connectedness. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available to anyone to view and download. For details about the contest and how to under your own design, visit upr.org. Well, I reached uh, Professor uh, Tallamy at his home in Pennsylvania uh, several uh, just several days ago. So I guess my uh, first question is: um, I don't know if you're surprised by the reaction that you've gotten. It seems like you've gotten some really good reaction to your, uh, you know, to your books, um, bringing nature home, and uh, now nature's best hope. It seems like it's they've gotten a lot of traction.
1: Uh, Yes, and and I am surprised. Uh, When I wrote Bringing Nature Home, I wrote it with the the freedom and confidence that nobody would read it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then I didn't have to worry about anything. But, um, you know, I think the timing was right, uh, and people are concerned. Uh, They see the natural world disappearing, and they want to be able to do something about it. So my message is pretty simple, and that is, you can do something about it. It's fairly easy. This is one environmental issue that a single person can make a difference in, and actually see the difference. And that that uh, has uh, caught on a lot more than I than I thought it would. But I am pleased and. Actually, when I wrote Bringing Nature Home, it, it changed my life as much as anything, because I, I thought it would be one more academic exercise and I'd move on. But we're, we're still at it, and it's, what, 13 years later now.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're an entomologist, right? Yes. Yeah. And so I, some people may not make the connection, uh, although, you know, E.O. Wilson, very uh, very famous entomologist.
1: The most famous entomologist, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> right, and has uh, forged you know some new paths in in ecology and and uh, you know um, changed a lot of uh, minds and changed a lot of behaviors.
1: Well, that's for sure. He he started entire disciplines on his own, um, but well, he's a he's a he's a most uh, well, wonderful man. But yeah, you know his latest, not his latest book, but one of his more recent books, 2016, was Half Earth. And how do we how do we uh, essentially uh, save life on planet Earth and that is to save ecosystem function on at least half of the year that's that's a tall order uh, but he he does tend to think think big
0: mm-hmm Uh, So, uh, quoting you, a recent UN report predicts as many as a million species will disappear from planet Earth because of human activities. Many of these are insects, right? Nearly all species uh, at risk rely on insects. Insects have already declined 45% since 1974. And then you go on to say the most alarming part of the statistics is we don't seem to care, despite the fact that the world without insects is a world without humans. Uh, Do you think that's that's changing?
1: I I do. When I say we don't care, it's, it's I really should have said we don't realize how, how important insects are, how critical they are, how absolutely necessary they are. And once I get that message across, I haven't found anybody that at that point still doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a matter of, of uh, educating. You know, so many things are. But we have we have vilified insects uh, for an awful long time. That's because the only insects we deal with are the ones that give us agricultural headaches or pass on diseases. Uh, We don't realize the other roles that they play, and that was another thing that that, uh, E.O. Wilson did for us in 1987 was to write a paper called The Little Things That Run the World, where he clearly outlined the essential roles that insects have from pollination to, you know, recycling nutrients, maintaining food webs that, that keep all the other animals around. You know, without insects, we as humans would disappear from the planet. That makes them pretty important. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make them optional either. It means they're they're essential. And when people realize that, they're they're on board.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, insects. I think um, get bad press, don't they? That, that <laughs> you, you don't have the sort of the mascots that you do with some of the other uh, other species. Um, so uh, you said that uh, world without insects is a world without humans. I wonder if you could expand on that a bit. What? Uh, how so? Why so?
1: Well, they, they pollinate pollinate 90% of our flowering plants. So if we lost our, our insect pollinators, we'd lose 90% of those flowering plants, 80% of all plants. And we're not just talking about agricultural plants. We're talking about all plants. So imagine a world where you've lost 80 to 90% of the plants. Right right there, you have lost humans because we wouldn't survive in such a world. Uh, they They are the most important creatures in terms of taking energy that plants harness from the sun, and then passing it on to other animals, uh, particularly caterpillars. They're, they're vital in doing that. So many things eat caterpillars that if you remove caterpillars, you'd lose most of the birds. Uh, and, and many of our mammals and, and uh, amphibians and reptiles as well would, would simply disappear because they're un, unable to get the energy straight from, from plants. Uh, so that makes, them, that makes them pretty important. Pretty important.
0: So you say we've we've destroyed natural habitat in so many places, local extinction is rampant. Global extinction is accelerating. A very serious uh, problem. Um, and uh, so you you talk about a solution that that's I think you know radical in some ways, but very logical in in, in, in at at bottom, right? Um, that uh, because nearly eighty five percent of the U.S. is privately owned. Uh, we we got to do something with that privately owned land.
1: That's for sure. We cannot do successful conservation if we ignore private property because that would leave just fifteen percent of the U.S. And that means that our our preserves, the places where we have functional ecosystems, would be so small and so isolated from each other uh, that they would be that conservation effort would be doomed to failure. You need connectivity between conservation. Uh, 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 we're islands of, of conservation. We don't want them to be islands. That's the whole idea. So if, you know, who's in between those, those uh, parks and preserves? It's, it's us. It's where we live. It's where we work. It's where we play, certainly where we farm. So we need to make those places, uh, instead of having them be no man's land, we have to make them viable habitats. And we can do that. It's just easier than everybody thinks. All we have to do is put the, the right plants back into our landscapes, and they have to. We have to have more plants. Right now, we have an area of of uh, lawn the size of New England in this country, and we keep adding hundreds of square miles of lawn every every year. And lawn is a deadscape. Ecologically, it's a, it's a disaster. That's not going to, to uh, save any species. So, get the plants back. That will form connectivity between the the parks and preserves not just so that animals and plants can move back and forth between preserves, but so that they can live with us. What I'm, yeah, that's what I'm saying, is find a way for humans and nature to coexist. Uh, I think it's our only option left, and if we do it, it'll be the first time in human history that we have done it. Uh, but with, you know, with almost 8 billion people on the planet, there's not enough room for the natural world that we depend on if we don't live with nature. <laughs>
0: Uh, so I guess that, that would be the biggest thing is uh, and you, we don't have to get rid of all of our lawn, right? Just get rid of part of it and plant some uh, native plants?
1: Yeah, I, I suggest we cut, cut the area in half. So we've got over 40 million acres of lawn right now. And if we, if we put plants in half of that area, that would create 20 million acres of conservation area. Uh, and if you add up what 20 million acres is, it's bigger than uh, all of our, our major national parks in the lower 48 combined. So I call it, you know, if we do this at home, we could call it homegrown national park. And there'd be a lot of advantages to having a natural area right outside your door. You can avoid the crowds. You can avoid the expense, the travel hassles. But most important, you get to interact with nature at your own speed, your own rate. Alone, not with millions of other people, and develop a personal relationship with nature that most people don't have at this point.
0: Uh, tell me more about that personal relationship with nature. Um, yeah, I think we sometimes we do remove ourselves, don't we? And part of that's <laughs> the, the art, art, the app, the the environment that we put ourselves in, kind of an artificial environment.
1: Very much so. Uh, we've gone beyond that. Uh, our you know, our news media, they like to sensationalize everything. And if you listen to the reports about nature, it's almost always bad, Very scary thing. Nature's going to kill you somehow. and And uh, so many people have internalized that now. They're afraid to go outside. They're going to get Lyme disease. They're going to get uh, West Nile. a panther's going to kill them. Something bad will happen. so we we be, you know, we become digitalized. We just stare at our phones uh, and and it's it's costing us. There are measurable physical benefits of interacting with, with nature, and more and more research is, is um, accentuating this. We, uh, it lowers our blood pressure and decreases our, our stress hormones. It's actually critical, it turns out, for normal child brain development. All these really interesting things popping up that uh, we never used to think about because we did used to interact with nature, whether we liked it or not. Now we have 82% of uh, the country living in cities, very little interaction with nature. And 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 what they have is often just on television. Mm.
0: Of course, in, in these extraordinary times, uh, probably would be an advantage if you have a nice, uh, you know, surrounded by native plants and a little bit of nature uh, while we're social distancing.
1: Absolutely. I am staring out the window right now <laughs> at all those plants you're talking about, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's been a salvation for a lot of people to, mm. to um, have a place to go. And, you know, if you, if you don't own property and you don't have a little slice of nature, uh, there's a park near you. And I know the social distancing makes it, makes it more of a challenge, but uh, as soon as we can, we need to get back out. So many of these parks and preserves need volunteers desperately. They don't, they're underfunded. They don't have enough personnel. But uh, they're labor-intensive, so it is, it is easy to actually get out there and, and be active in the natural world.
0: You're listening to Access Utah and our conversation with Douglas Tallamy. He's a professor in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at University of Delaware. You probably know him from his book, Bringing Nature Home which awakened thousands of readers to the urgent situation. Wildlife populations are in decline because the native plants they depend on are fast disappearing. His new book is Nature's Best Hope. The subtitle is A New Approach to Conservation That Starts in Your Yard. We'll be talking more about this as we go along. Uh, By the way, if you've uh, got your May edition of National Geographic, um, the the, the, – A cover story is all about this as well. It's titled, Where Have All the Insects Gone? The bugs aren't just occasional nuisances. They're crucial to the environment. Now populations of species worldwide are failing at alarming rates. The uh, cover story by Elizabeth Colbert. So check that out as well. Um, And just to mention before we go to break, that Utah Public Radio and Bridgeland Autumn Society are launching the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens, and this art contest celebrates the beauty of this interdependence and connectedness. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for anyone to view and download. Details about the contest, how to enter your own design, you can go to upr.org. That's upr.org. We'll have more with Douglas Tallamy following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Douglas Tallamy. He's a professor in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at University of Delaware. He's uh, authored uh, three books now. Um, he uh, came out uh, with the book Living Landscape, co-authored with Rick Dark. Uh, his first book was Bringing Nature Home, How Native Plants Sustained Wildlife on Our Gardens, and the new book, is Nature's Best Hope, a new approach to conservation that starts in your yard. And uh, that's what he is promoting. Uh, He says homeowners everywhere can turn their yards into conservation corridors that provide wildlife habitats. We'll get into talking a little bit uh, in more specificity in uh, this next segment of the the program. Uh, I reached Douglas Tallamy uh, last week. So I want to talk about uh, lawns uh, just a little bit more. Um, I mean it it has been a status symbol, right a nice big old you know <laughs> lawn um Absolutely, how, how do we yeah. how do we best change that it's going to take some changing of, of you know social norms isn't it
1: very very much so I mean it's been a status symbol for hundreds of years. the aristocracy in Europe were the only people that had lawns and of course uh, uh, George Washington and, and Thomas uh, Jefferson and all, all those guys copied that. In the old days, there were no lawnmowers, so the only people that had lawns were the the ones that had enough property that they didn't have to have every inch in agriculture. They had enough slaves, so they had enough sheep, so that they could maintain that lawn. Then, around the turn of the century, we invented the uh, the lawnmower, and all of us poor Slavs could could have uh, have lawn and. And then, of course, we, you know, we fell to uh, victims to marketing. Um, the lawn folks tell us if it's not a perfect lawn. Uh, back in the 50s, if it wasn't a perfect lawn, you were a communist, and we bought into that. You're just not a good citizen if you don't maintain it in the way that the fertilizer companies tell you you, you should maintain it. So now there can be no clover, there can be no dandelions, nothing blooming in there, just that carpet of grass, and that shows that you are a good citizen. And, of course, everybody wants to be a good citizen. We don't, you know, most people are not rebels. They want to fit in with their neighbors. They don't want to antagonize them. Uh, so that has that's had us around the neck for a long time. And that's why when I say cut the lawn in half, I am not saying abandon the lawn you do have. Uh, you should manicure it, keep it mowed. It's that cue for care that shows you're still that good citizen. But you can also add an oak tree to your yard, and it doesn't make you a communist or a bad citizen. Uh, but it does bring a lot of life to your yard
0: hmm. what if you talk a little bit more about uh, how native plants um, you know how that helps the whole ecosystem Maybe okay. give me that's, some that's, examples
1: that's, uh, yeah right that is that is critical all plants are not equal in their ability to maintain the life around them and that is because uh, plants really don't want to be eaten they want to capture the energy from the sun and, and use it for their own growth and reproduction. So they protect their tissues, typically with nasty-tasting chemicals. Sometimes it's spines and thorns and other things. But, but almost every plant lineage has what we call secondary metabolic compounds. These are, these are toxic or distasteful chemicals that keep things from eating those plants. And it's a really effective defense. that keeps most of the insects of the world from eating most of the plants of the world. But of course, we do know that insects eat plants, and they, but they only eat the plants that they have had the time and the ability to adapt to. So they've developed the special physiological mechanisms to detoxify those plants and the behavioral and, and life history adaptations that allow them to use those plants without dying. But it takes a long period of what we call co-evolution, where the plant and the insect are evolving together. Uh, and you come up with a relationship very much like uh, the, the one that the monarch has with, with milkweeds. The monarch is locked into eating milkweeds. It does really well on milkweeds. But when you take milkweeds away, it doesn't start to eat eucalyptus or, or uh, crepe myrtle or any of the other ornamentals that we, we use. What it does is disappear. And that is true for 90% of the insects that eat plants. They're, they're what we call host plant specialists. If you take away the plant on which they, they have depended for millions of years, they will disappear. So imagine losing 90% of the insects that, that interact with plants. Um, that alone would be devastating ecologically.
0: Uh, what if you talk a little bit more about uh, uh, birds? Uh, of course, we have this uh, push going on right now in a partnership with uh, Bridgeland Audubon Society and the, the Utah Native Plant Society uh, to make our yards more bird-friendly. So native plants will do that?
1: They sure do, and you don't do it without native plants. Um, so one of the major things that, that insects do is supply the food. I was talking about that drives those food webs. And if we just look at the food webs that keep uh, birds alive, they focus uh, almost entirely on insects. So 96% of our terrestrial birds uh, use insects, particularly when they are rearing their young. Um, a lot of people think birds eat seeds and berries, and if you fill your bird feeder, that's all you need to do. And many birds do rely on seeds over the winter time. But think of our migrants. We had, what, 346 species of, of neotropical migrants. The reason they're migrating is they eat insects, and they have to go south, down into the tropics, where insects around, uh, are around all year round. Uh, so they depend on insects, and they depend on a lot of them. We've done some work with, with chickadees, Carolina chickadee in this, this area. Just to raise one, one clutch of chickadees takes 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars. And they're, they're getting those caterpillars within 50 meters of the nest. So if you want a, a breeding pair of chickadees in your yard, you've got to have six to 9,000 caterpillars within 50 meters of the nest. And let's face it, that's not the way we have built our yards. We've built them in ways that, that uh, make sure we have no caterpillars. So yeah. to maintain our birds, and chickadees are just an example. All of the birds need thousands and thousands of insects to rear those, those young. And, of course, if birds don't reproduce, it doesn't take long for all of them to disappear. And they are disappearing. A study that came out in science last year said we've lost 3 billion birds uh, in the last 40 years. Oh, I always like to remind hmm. people how how many a billion is. Yeah, that's amazing. A million, million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 31.7 years. It's a lot of birds that are no, no longer here. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But but decreasing the amount of food available for these birds during reproduction, time of reproduction, is, is one of the critical reasons that most people haven't thought about. Mm.
0: Yeah, that is, that is amazing. Uh, and again, just to reiterate, um, y- your goal that you're putting out there is uh, the equivalent of a new national park, 20 million acres. What, w- is that going to take all of us homeowners to cut our lawns in half, and what, what's that going to take?
1: The more, the merrier. (laughs) Um, No, you know, if if one person does it, uh, it will make a difference, and you'll be able to see that difference, but it'll be a tiny difference. So every time you get another person on board here, uh, the difference will grow. Uh, We want to provide habitat. That's one good thing about insects is that they don't require that much habitat. You can increase the population of the insects around you uh, without, you know, you don't need 1,000 acres to do that. My wife and I live on, on 10 acres, and it was mowed for hay when we moved in. Well, we have put the plants back, and I've been counting the number of species of moths that now that I've taken pictures of uh, in, in our, our yard. I'm up to 934 species, and I'm still going. I get new species all the time. So it'll top out over 1,000. And because we've got so many moths, and I call them bird food, we have 55 species of birds that have bred on our property. That's what I mean by rebuilding ecosystem function by putting the plants back that then support the food webs that bring the life to you and it's enormously rewarding so you don't have to like insects at all but if you like birds and right now they are our charismatic megafauna you got to feed those birds you mm. got to feed them more than seeds and berries
0: yeah now of course this won't you know if you have a small piece of property you're not going to you know you're not going to have the bears and the elk and the <laughs> the deer, right, but but, but you can, but right. what you're, what you're you saying have is, the deer. <laughs> well, it could have the deer, um, b- yeah. but uh, there, there's a lot of species you can't help, So what you're saying.
1: A lot of the, the the really big ones, that's true. But when you're looking at numbers of species, uh, most most species are small, hmm. uh, and most species of birds are relatively small. So even if we just said, okay, we're going to help the, the insects and the birds, we've taken a big chunk out of the biodiversity out there and, and helped them. Uh, many other things will come. Uh, you know, foxes, have, for example, have been shown to live very happily with humans as long as they have enough to eat. Uh, yeah, you're not going to not going to have bears. You're not going to have panthers and, and elk. Uh, but really, that's that's a handful of of those big big mammals that you're not going to have. Mm-hmm. And that's what our other other parks and preserves are for. Mm-hmm. But it's the little things that are disappearing now. The things that used to be common, and that's what we have to be be concerned about it's It's a lot of people don't get upset until we're on the verge of extinction. Well, if you look at your yard, you say, Well, how many species are in my yard today, and how many species were there before it was my yard? If you have fewer species today than before, uh, you've had a, a you've had local extinction. And that's what we ought to be alarmed about. It's the number of species in an ecosystem that that run that ecosystem. And the more species you have, the more smoothly it runs, the more productive it is, the more stable it is. And of course, it's ecosystems. We want ecosystems to run because they are producing what we call ecosystem services, all the things that keep humans alive. And with the, the number of people we have on the planet today, we need highly functioning, efficient ecosystems, producing ecosystem services everywhere, not just in little pockets here and there. We need them everywhere. Mm.
0: Um, so uh, the website bringingnaturehome.net, is that the place for people to go?
1: Uh, that is a place to go, Yeah,
0: yes. <laughs> bringing bringingnaturehome.net, you can find Douglas Tallamy there. Um, and on that uh, site uh, up the top, one of the uh, tabs is, what should I plant? That's an important question, right? And and that's kind of localized, isn't it, to the native very, plants to, to, to your area. Um, so if you click on that, you can... You can uh, uh, put in uh, your, your zip code and find out the best things to, to plant for your area.
1: Right. There's a, a, we've created a tool that's actually uh, launched on the National Wildlife Federation website called Native Plant Finder. Uh, you put in your zip code, and the ranked woody and herbaceous plants, ranked in terms of, of their ability to support the life around you, will pop up for your county. Works really well in the east. As you get to the west, you get some huge counties with mountain ranges in the middle, um, sometimes it depends on which side of the mountain you're on. It gets a little bit more complicated, but it's the best tool we have at this point. There's another one, if you live in California, called Calscape, uh, which is uh, it's even, it's even better because they, they have um, GPS coordinates of where every single plant in California is found, and you can look at that map and say, well, this is where I live. These are the plants that are there. Uh, very, very productive website.
0: So I uh, I typed in my zip code uh, for Logan, Utah, here in northern Utah, and I scrolled to trees and shrubs. So they list uh, willow, uh, beech plum, cherry, choke cherry, aspen, cottonwood, poplar, pine, oak. That's one of your favorites, isn't oak? Uh, It
1: it is, but it's my favorite because... In 84% of the counties of, of North America, it, it supports more insects and, therefore, supports more biodiversity than any other plant genus. Uh, so that's one of the reasons it makes it my my favorite. Actually, I've loved oak since I was a little boy. I don't know why, but uh, now I have a good reason to. Yeah. If you want to feed the birds, that is the best plant you can put in your yard in most areas of the country.
0: Mm-hmm. Also here in northern Utah, at least in Logan area, flowers and grasses, when I punch in the zip code here, uh, strawberry, sunflower, uh, deer vetch, uh, trefoil, sagebrush, wormwood, goldenrod, lupine, uh, rabbit brush, and violet. Um, so uh, I guess for maybe to encourage people who haven't indulged in gardening and such, um, I guess one of the things I'd be worried about is it's it's going to – I'm not going to know how to do this, right? I guess you can just reach out and get some advice.
1: Uh, yeah, that, that, that is an issue, right? You're, we're not taught about this in, in school. Most people enter adulthood without knowing how to do it. Uh, there are a lot of experts out there, but there's also a, a missing niche, a vacant niche. I call them ecological landscapers. There are a few people doing it, but we need many more. Most people, particularly young, young adults with, with small kids, are not doing their own gardening. They're on landscaping. They just hire somebody. And in a lot of places, that, that somebody can be hard to find except for the traditional uh, mo, blow, and go guys. So, uh, so I encourage people to think about this as a, as a future career. Um, there is a demand. Every place I go to give, give talks, back when I used to give talks, uh, people say, who can I hire? And a lot of places, I, say, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Mm, yeah, so that, that's that's a, a need that can be filled. Uh, exactly. So b- back to your, uh, you know, put on putting on your entomologist hat. Um, what what are the, what are the insects that we want to attract?
1: Uh, there are two groups. You know, we've got almost four million species of insects uh, on the planet. And when I say you want to you want to make insects, I don't have a lot of them. You, there are certain groups that we want to focus on first because they're critical to everything else. And that would be the insects that are pollinating the plants, because without those pollinators, many of those insects are specialists. If you take them away, you've lost that particular plant. Uh, so that's one group. The other group uh, is caterpillars. And, and again, um, this is this is news to a lot of people. People don't think about caterpillars as being good guys. But uh, they are. they do a number of things that other insects don't do. They eat more plant material than any other type of insect, and that's the goal is to get the energy from plants up the food web so that other things can use it. They're soft, so if you're a bird, you can step it down the throat of your offspring without fear of injuring them. So they their exoskeleton, their cuticle is very thin. Uh, I, always, I look at a caterpillar and think of it as, a, as a, um, a sausage with a very thin wrapper. A lot of good food in there, but there's not a lot of exoskeleton, which is undigestible. Compared to beetles, for example, which are a lot of exoskeleton, a lot of sharp corners, and not, not as good bird food. And research has shown that they are the they have more carotenoids than any other type of, of insect. And carotenoids are, are essential comp, components in our diet, but we as vertebrates don't make them. We have to get them from plants. Well, during reproduction, birds are not eating plants, so they have to get them from the things they eat, which if they eat caterpillars, they've got good good uh, amounts of carotenoids that uh, they can give to their offspring and um, lots of good things happen when when they have carotenoids. So. Hmm. so, those are the the two groups I would focus on: pollinators and and caterpillars. And then the other insects will come as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you gotta you gotta plant the right plants, right, to attract those. That's
1: that's where that host plant specialization mm-hmm. comes in.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: but that's also where, where the oak tree comes in. Where I live, uh, I'm in, in uh, Chester County, Pennsylvania, and there are 511 species of caterpillars that eat oaks just in my county. Now, if I planted a ginkgo from, from Asia, they're zero. That's the difference we're talking about here. So mm. it, does, it does, and that's what that website is for. It will, when I, those plants are ranked, um, they're ranked in terms of their ability to support caterpillars.
0: You're listening to Access Utime Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is Doug Tallamy. He's an entomologist at the University of Delaware. He lives, as you heard, there in Pennsylvania. Uh, later this hour, I'm going to ask uh, Professor Tallamy to look out his window. He's sheltering in place, by the way, at home. I look out his window and describe his yard. A lot of native plants, as you would imagine, in his yard. Douglas Tallamy is author of Bringing Nature Home. The latest book is Nature's Best Hope. And we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. i Tom Williams. We're talking with Douglas Ptolemy. He's an entomologist at the University of Delaware, author of uh, three books uh, so far, Bringing Nature Home, uh, How Native Plants Sustained Wildlife in Our Gardens, The Living Landscape, co-authored with Rick Dark, and the new book is Nature's Best Hope, A New Approach to Conservation That Starts in Your Yard. Before we jump into um, the remainder of our conversation with Douglas Tallamy, uh, you know the UPR Art Mug Contest. And now Utah Public Radio and Bridgeland Audubon Society are excited to present the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. This art contest is meant to highlight the importance of native birds for pollinators—native plants, rather, for pollinators and birds— the winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark and then distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online. And you can learn more about that contest and how to enter at upr.org. That's upr.org. So that's an exciting opportunity for you. Um, and uh, we'll jump now back into conversation I recorded last week with Douglas Tallamy. I want to ask you a couple of questions questions, and I don't want, don't want to steal these questions without attribution because I think they're really good questions. Uh, so you did a an event with the Cape Fear Audubon Society, Wilmington, North Carolina, and their president, Charlie Winterbauer, did an interview with you, and it's on their website, nc.audubon.org. Um, so uh, scrolling down here, uh, interesting question here. Outdoor lighting, does that affect insect populations?
1: Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, insects are disappearing. You've seen the headlines, insect apocalypse this year. And again, many reasons for that, lots of habitat and everything else. But night lighting is a major cause. After 100 years of of trying to figure it out, we still don't know why insects are attracted to uh, night lights. But many of them are. Many of them are moths, which are those, that's the adult caterpillar we're talking about. Uh, And a trip to a light is often a one-way trip. They fly around and exhaust themselves uh, many moths are, are, uh, do not eat as adults, so they're born with all the energy they're ever going to have, or they emerge as an adult with all the energy they're ever going to have. And if they if they fly around a light all night long, they use up that energy. Then they're not going to go off and, and reproduce. Or a bat will come and pick them off, or they'll sit on the side of the wall, uh, and in the morning the birds come pick them off. So tremendous mortality from our night lights. So there's two things you can do. Three things. One is turn your light off. That's pretty easy. Mm. Everybody's worried about security. Oh, the bad man will come. Well, put a motion sensor on your, your nightlight, your security light, so that it only turns on when the bad man comes. And you'll be amazed to see how often the bad man does not come. Uh, and if you don't like that, then put in a yellow bulb. And a yellow LED bulb is is the best, uh, because yellow, for some reason, is not attractive to, to insects. So we save a tremendous amount of energy, uh, and electricity, but we'll also, overnight, if we replace our light bulbs, we could save billions of insects, uh, almost instantaneously, instantaneously. Very easy solution to a serious problem.
0: Mm. Yeah, and something you I, sometimes don't think about, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: It's, it's another habit we have. You, we mm-hmm. go around our neighborhoods, everybody's got a light on. I just want to say, why? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Why are these lights on?
0: Yeah. And, and oh, by the way, you, we could contribute to dark skies, right, by by doing this. Oh,
1: that's 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 right. That would be another benefit. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, Another one of these questions, um, how do we create a space for ground-nesting bees in our yards?
1: Uh, Well, ground-nesting bees need ground, and most people with yards have ground. But they do best in soil that's diggable, so any kind of a sandy loam is, is perfect for nesting bees. There are bees that can go right through clay, but uh, it's a lot of species prefer the stuff that's easiest to dig. A slight south sloping area uh, is good. And, and particularly for the early season bees, the spring bees, uh, they want a place that the sun's going to hit so it warms up quickly. Uh, so uh, you want an area that is, is bare ground. Now, there's, this is the only reason I would recommend bare ground uh, because bare ground is, is not good for the things that live in soil. But little patches of bare areas are perfect for ground-nesting bees. And sometimes you get an area that uh, is really good for the ground-nesting bees, and they all go to that one place. So you end up having these bees flying around, and people say, oh, no, they're going to sting me. These are native bees. They're not social, meaning they're solitary, and they're not there protecting a hive, uh, so they don't sting you. I mean, you can pet them, and they will not sting you. Even though they're, they're flying around, they look scary. Uh, it's typically the honeybee that we brought in from, from Europe that is protecting a hive that, that stings most people. Or what really stings most people are not bees at all. They're, they're yellow jackets. Those are, those are wasps or bald-faced hornets. Those are wasps that are uh, they're very aggressive, and we're not talking about promoting them. So it's actually relatively easy to have a place for bees to nest. The harder part is providing the forage that those bees need. You have to have the blooming plants that they need uh, and you have to have it throughout their life life cycle. Uh, and again, this is where where specialization comes in. In uh, those ranked plants you mentioned for for Utah, I, I heard goldenrod, solidago, and I heard western sunflower. The uh, perennial sunflowers that that you people have, those are two. And violets, those are those are very highly ranked in terms of supporting specialist bees. With those three genera, genera you will have uh, about 40 species of of bees that you wouldn't have if you don't have them in your yard.
0: Mm-hmm. And again, I just want to uh, point out that what I was doing was northern Utah, of course, so encourage people to, uh, to go to that uh, that site and, and punch in your your uh, zip code. Um, which, let's see, by, by the way, uh, that's uh, nwf.org, uh, and you can find right. the native plant finder there. Um, so what... Uh, What's the action or actions that, uh, that a homeowner can, can do that would make the most difference? How, how should we prioritize what we're doing in our yards?
1: In terms of long-term goals, reducing the area of lawn is going to make the most difference. Uh, and I, I've given talks and people at the end say, oh, I'm going to go home and rip out all my lawn. No, don't do that, because then you've got a big job uh, ahead of you. I would say, go home and add a tree. Now this is, this is biome specific. It depends on where you live. If you're in the middle of the desert, adding a tree that's going to require water is not what I'm suggesting. You want to add the plants that are appropriate to where you live. But getting a plant into an area that is now without a plant is, is the most important thing you can do. And, and adding plants is, is easy. When I say plant a tree, um, I'm going to recommend plant a small tree. It will grow. If you plant a small tree or even the seed of a tree, so if you're going to plant uh, an oak, maybe you can put an acorn in the ground. Uh, You will end up with a much healthier tree that will live a lot longer and have a much bigger root system because it will not have to be root pruned to transplant it, and it's free. Uh, So a lot of pluses to going small, Uh, but most of them are that you're going to have a healthier tree in the end. So you don't have to spend a lot of money. Let me say, I can't afford it. Yes, you can. Just plant that acorn.
0: Yeah, that's right. It takes an acorn. Um, how do you think climate change could affect diversity? Negatively. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that's one of the factors. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not the gradual warming that's the big problem. I mean, that is a big problem. But it's the increased variability that is clobbering insects right now. We had a, a uh, I guess it was two summers ago, we had a thunderstorm in July that dumped seven inches of rain in three hours in, in my yard and three inches of rain in 45 minutes. It was like a fire hose that came down, and it just scoured the caterpillars off the trees. And this is so we're moving into the third summer since that event. The, they still haven't recovered to the to the population levels that they were at before that storm. Um, right now we're having a very cold spring, so we have blooming plants out. And the pollinators that bloom those plants are not out yet. We've got asynchrony, uh, and and these extreme weather events are are hitting insects um, in you know large, very large areas. In the West, of course, you've got you've got these mega droughts that are very hard on insects, followed by fire. There's not many insects that do well in fires. So all of these things, or or in look at the the southern states where we're having so many floods. Houston, where you have where you have you know forty square miles underwater for two weeks, that's not very good for insects either. So all of these things are knocking insect populations down, and it's that increased climate variability that's that's the cause.
0: Hmm. Maybe just a, a one more question from this interview you gave to the Cape Fear Audubon Society that's in North Carolina. Uh, some great questions. So I've been using these in this section of the interview. I want to read this one verbatim. Uh, in your opinion, what are some really fascinating but little-known insect plant adaptations that the general public might be able to see if they looked a little more closely?
1: Well, there's one. Uh, do you have monarchs that come through
0: Utah? Uh, I think you're so. are right there in the middle. I think so.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, if you're in a place where you have, have monarchs that are, are breeding, uh, they have a... a, a it is a fascinating adaptation against the milky latex sap that's in, in milkweeds. That's what gives milkweeds its, its common name. If you break open a leaf, break open a vein, all this white goo comes out. Well, that's a sticky latex sap that hardens, uh, turns into a chewing gum like substance when it's exposed to air. Uh, and if a caterpillar gets that on its mandibles, it glues its mouth shut, and then the caterpillar starves to death. So here you have monarch caterpillars that are eating this plant that glues its mouthpart shut. How do they do that? How do they avoid that? And they avoid it very simply. They crawl up the leaf maybe two-thirds of the way, and they chew through the midrib of the leaf, which blocks the flow of the sticky latex scent, so that everything below the point where they've chewed through the midrib is latex-free. They can now eat that leaf and not, not glue their mouthpart shut. It's a very simple behavioral adaptation that most insects haven't figured out how to do, and most insects cannot eat milkweeds. And that's something you can watch right in your yard if you plant milkweeds. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So when you you asked me to have monarch butterflies in Utah, I Googled it. Um, And uh, here's what came up. Uh, Monarch butterflies in Utah need your help. And this is from the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, their wildlife blog, Paul Thompson, deputy director the Department of National Resources Recovery Programs Office, says numbers of monarchs have been declining in the West and in Utah. And how you can help, you can uh, make sure you have nectar-rich flowering plants from spring through fall, I guess, in your yard.
1: Well, that'll help the adult. But you're not going to have monarch reproduction without those milkweeds.
0: Okay, so make sure you have milkweeds as well. Yeah.
1: Ex- exactly, Yeah.
0: Uh, Mr. Thompson goes on to talk about milkweed, so I, I should give him credit there as well. So yes, monarchs in Utah, and you can help. And that, uh, I guess, that's in with one species, and that's writ large with many species is how you can help is, is native plants.
1: That's right. So the, the greater the diversity of native plants, every time you add a plant lineage to your yard, you're adding more more insects. Mm-hmm. And most, you know, a lot of people say, oh, "I don't want insects You won't even see them. Remember those birds that are breeding in your yard? They're eating them, and. I show pictures of of uh, you know wonderful caterpillars, fantastic diversity, and people come back. I can't find them. I look everywhere. I can't find them. I said, "That's right. The birds have eaten them before you, before you can find." Them. So you don't have to worry about about uh, having all insects swarming around you. Uh, and if you see them, they're 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 beautiful. They're entertaining. They're fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, they are beautiful. Uh, finally, we're reaching the end of our time here. Um, you, you've you've painted a little bit of a picture about your property. You know, looking out your window. Are you are you home at this point?
1: <laughs> yes,
0: I am. Yeah, so you're in Delaware, <laughs> right? Um, well, I
1: live in Pennsylvania. Oh, you live I, in I Pennsylvania, work in Delaware, but I live in Pennsylvania.
0: Okay, so they're in they're in Pennsylvania, and you said you got your ten acres. Um, so I wonder if you could maybe inspire us, uh, get, because I, I'm assuming that you uh, practice what you preach. <laughs> you've, you talked about that a little bit um so yeah. talk talk about your yard what what you can see and and uh, some of the beauties there
1: well our yard uh, was mowed for hay it was part of a farm that was broken up and and it's been in agriculture for over 300 years but it's the latest you know every year got got uh, less and less productive Finally, it was just just mowed for hay for the mushroom industry and uh it had been taken out of mowing three years before we actually uh, built the house and moved in so what did move in, in the time, at that time were all the invasive plants from Asia. Um, I could list them. You even probably don't have them in, in Utah, but uh, almost every plant on this property was was a plant from China. So step one was to uh, get rid of them. When I say get rid of them, we got rid of the, you know, the big guys. Uh, we still have little ones coming up that keep invading from the neighbors, but uh, we're now pretty much invasive-free, and that gave us a clean slate to start putting the plants back that, that were here uh, in the old days, the ones that are really productive, like those, those oaks and black cherries and yellows. And, and, uh, we've got 100, 105 genera of woody plants on our property. Now, we planted a lot of them, but uh, the, the local animals have planted a lot as well. Blue jays are, are great planters of, of oaks, of carrying the acorns and that. Tapped them underground and beached beach, seeds. Beach, beach. Uh, so they helped out a lot. The squirrels have moved hickories around. Uh, so now when I look out my window, what used to be just flatland wasn't actually flat. You know what I'm seeing when I look out right now? I am seeing a big turkey walk by. <laughs> we had 27 turkeys walk through the other day, and, and if I see one, there's more. Um, another thing, I mean, they they weren't here before. But the biggest, you know, the the, the two indicators of what has come to our property because of the, the trees and plants we put back here are the number of species of moths, up to 932, and the number of birds that come to breed to be able to eat their, their caterpillars. 55 species on our, our 10 acres. Uh, so that's how I know that it's working. And uh, it's, you know, the other, The other really great thing is that every year we find something new, a species that hasn't been here uh, yeah. Now, we are in our 20th year at this point, but uh, it's been a fun 20 years. We still find new things, uh, and and uh, we, we will continue to.
0: So yeah, that's, it's been a great success. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. And and as I said, it uh, seems like the idea is uh, catching on, so hopefully hopefully it will continue. Um, well, we've been talking with Doug, uh, Douglas Tallamy. He's a professor in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at University of Delaware. And uh, the books uh, include Bringing Nature Home, The Living Landscape, and um, the uh, latest one is Nature's Best Hope. And you can find out much uh, more at bringingnaturehome.net. Douglas Tallamy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Our thanks to Professor Douglas uh, Tallamy for that uh, stimulating conversation. Thank you to him. Uh, just to mention here at the end, Utah Public Radio and Bridgeland Audubon Society are excited to launch the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens. And this art contest celebrates the beauty of this independence and connectedness. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for anyone to view and download For details about the contest and how to enter your own design, visit upr.org. That's upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today.